I've called this series An Easter You'll Never Forget, and the reason for that is because in Luke's gospel, he has a particular aim. He has a particular thing he's trying to do, and what he's trying to do, he says at the beginning, I'm writing these things so that you might know that what you have been taught is really true. He says you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. You might not forget it's true. You might know it's true. It might be lodged in your mind as certainly true. So an Easter you never forget. And uh, today, a Palm Sunday, you'll never forget. What's going on in the story? We're just diving right into Luke's gospel. What's going on in the story? Jesus said, Luke says, after he, that is Jesus, you'll find this in the beginning of the passage when we begin. After he, that is Jesus, said these things, what it's referring to is a story that he told, a parable that he told about a king going up to Jerusalem. And some people accepted him, but some people did not. And the judgment that comes because of that. And so there is Jesus, and he's going up to Jerusalem. The king is coming to his city. What's going to happen? What we've called this uh, particular sermon is how to find peace. Because the king is coming to his city, and he's offering peace. And will that peace offering, as it were, be accepted? So Luke chapter 19, I'm going to read from verse 28 through to verse 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany... At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has even yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Amen. Do please sit down. How do you find peace? Well, to answer that question, we first of all need to make sure that we're on the same page as to what we mean by the word peace. People use peace in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes when we use the word peace, we simply mean absence of war. We're living in a time of peace because there's no 
military conflict. It's a city at peace. No one is invading that city. It's a time of peace in the sense there's no military war happening. One way this uh, was uh, used was uh, before the Second World War when uh, the Western powers were desperate to have a time of peace almost at any cost. A particular politician went and thought that he'd made a deal that would lead to peace, came back and said, peace in our time, but it was anything but peace in our time. But that's one way that people use peace. They mean it military peace, social peace, political peace, cultural peace, that kind of external time of peace. Another way that people often use peace is just in the sense of a bit of peace and quiet, you know, you, you've got home, the children are in bed, and finally you can have a bit of peace and quiet. You've done your homework, and finally you can have a bit of peace and quiet. I remember a few days ago when it was uh, 70 degrees and the sun was shining and it hadn't turned to winter again as it just has this morning. And I was out in our uh, backyard with one of my children, and we were playing out there. And... Um, he sort of looked above my head and began to laugh. And I looked up above my head and I noticed there were mosquitoes. So here, here you are, I thought to myself. It's either cold and snowy in Chicago or it's hot and mosquitoes. I would like a third option. But anyway, it was a time of peace and quiet. It's peace. What, though, does the Bible mean by peace and quiet? What does the Bible mean, not by peace and quiet, but by the word peace? In the background to this whole story here is the word from the Old Testament, shalom. And shalom means peace in the sense of wholeness, wholeness, integration, fulfillment, this is very much the ancient way of thinking about peace. The Greeks had a word for it, a different word. They called it eudaimonia. It was a sense of fulfillment. But in the biblical narrative, the way that shalom comes is as you have peace with God and therefore peace internally and therefore peace around you with other people and therefore, in the end, peace in the new heaven and the new earth in eternity to come. Shalom. And what's going on here in this story as the disciples sing, sing peace on earth and glory in the highest and Jesus goes to Jerusalem, everyone is rejoicing apart from one person and that is Jesus who is weeping. If, if you, even you, had known on this day what would go towards peace. He's weeping because though some people accept that peace, others will reject it. And he's going up to the city of Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem means literally the foundation of shalom, the foundation of peace, Jerusalem. He's going up to the city of Jerusalem, and will they find peace? And Luke constructs his story really brilliantly to make sort of three basic points. One is, how do you find peace? It's what you praise. And then it's, 
who you listen to, and then it's when you decide. First of all, what you praise, and this is verses 29 through to verse 38. Here's the sort of traditional Palm Sunday part of the story. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem on a, on a colt, a fold of a donkey, and uh, everyone is praising, and there are palm branches, at least in, in, the, in the stories in the different Gospels, and that's the kind of picture we have, but it's very carefully constructed, this part of the story, to teach us about this, what you praise. In particular, about practical obedience. They're told by Jesus to do something. Go into the city, you'll find a colt that's tied up. Untie the colt. If anyone asks you what you're doing, say the Lord has need of it. And Luke deliberately repeats that part of the story again so that we get the point that these disciples did what Jesus said. It's actually practical obedience. And this, so this praise, this singing to Jesus is not vacuous. It's not meaningless. It's not just lip service. These people praise me their lips, but their hearts are from me, far from me. No. In this instance, these disciples are actually doing what Jesus says. And that's really at the heart of worship, isn't it? That actually, we actually do what Jesus says. And you say, oh, I don't have much peace. What could it be? You're not really doing what Jesus is asking you to do. Practical obedience, what they praise, but also congregational worship. They're singing together. They're not, they're not separate and solo. They're not on their own. They, they've, they've gathered together in, in great congregational worship, in, in, in the thrill of praise, because they're gathered together. Well, maybe that's why you don't have much peace. Your world feels like it's spinning out of control because, you know, you come to church like maybe once a month on a good month. You need to have this gathered worship experience that resets your mind and your heart on who God is and what life is truly about and Church itself, the very word church, ecclesia, means a gathering. And here we have the, the infant New Testament church, the disciples, gathered around Jesus in praise. Practical obedience, gather worship, biblical content. They use the Psalms, they're carefully selected. It's all done to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah that Jesus would go up to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, humble. He's going up deliberately with humility because he's, he's going to die on a cross for the sins of his people. He's going humbly to offer them a way to find peace. And they're, they're singing psalms that are filled with biblical content. We work so hard about that, uh, uh, on that as a church that our singing, our worship, we fill with biblical content so that we're constantly teaching one another and affirming together and encouraging together the truth of God, that these things are really true, that the, that the Bible really does fit together as one story. It's not a piecemeal bit of slogans and sayings. It's, it's one story that Zechariah and the Psalms fit together. It all fulfills at this moment as Jesus goes to the city of Jerusalem and to, to die on a cross. It all 
fits together. It's filled with biblical content, and that's so important in our worship. You know, this, what you praise, is really life-giving, and it will give you peace, wholeness, shalom, when it's centered on Jesus. There's a... um, there was a firefighter. There was a big fire in the city, and uh, the firefighters had gathered uh, to try and put out the blaze. It was a four-floor big house, and the firefighters were there. And, and um, then they noticed on the top floor, as they were trying to put out this fire, on the top floor, there was a child's face peered out of the window, and the child was stuck on the top floor. And of course, the firefighter, being brave, got the ladder, started to climb up to reach this child. By now, a, a great crowd had gathered. And he went through the, up to the second and then got to the third, but then the fire was so intense that he, he just couldn't push his way through the fire. And he started to climb back down again. And a voice in the crowd said, cheer him up great cheer arose from the crowd. You can do it. Let's go. Yay. And he turned around and started to go back up again. They cheered him up through the fire. He got to the, got to the child and brought it back down again. And when we gather together and worship, that's part of the purpose. It's like God is real. And yeah, I've experienced him this week. And th- th- this guy over there, he really hasn't. He's had a tough week. But he looks across and he sees your face and like, oh, okay, God really is, is real. And, and it, it cheers us up. I can, I can serve him another week. I have this sense of being in the right place. Of being fulfilled. Of having Shalom, peace. It's what you praise. It's also who you listen to. This is verses 39 to 40 in the passage. And here, of course, we've got this great drama. So you've got, you know, we think of Palm Sunday as everyone singing and praising, but that's, that's, that's really not all that was going on on that first Palm Sunday. Because you also have the Pharisees. They're not singing and praising. In fact, they're trying to stop people from listening to what is being said and sung. Rebuke your disciples, teacher. Stop that. We don't want people to hear it. Now, of course, they would have been happy if Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to throw out the Romans and establish the, the kingdom in their understanding. But for Jesus to come humble, riding on a donkey, to rescue God's people, that just turned the whole world upside down. Of course, the Pharisees stand in this story, as so often the stories of the gospel, for the sort of religious opposition to the grace of God. So often that's the way it is, isn't it? Paul Tournier, great Swiss Swiss, uh, psychologist of the last century, once said this, on every page in the New Testament, you find the paradoxical truth that it is not guilt." That is the blockage to grace. But suppressed guilt. Self-justification. Genuine self-righteousness. A smug religiosity. The Pharisee. I don't want to hear that, Jesus. Stop it. I'm good enough as it is. Who you listen to. 
And of course, Jesus comes back and says, well, if, you, if, you, if, if they're quiet, the very stones themselves will cry out. And what does Jesus mean by that? Jesus means something very specific. It's okay to use it poetically, of course, but Jesus means something very specific. He's referring back to a prophecy in the Old Testament in Habakkuk, or as they say in these parts, Habakkuk or something, something like that? I don't know. Isaiah, Isaiah, tomato, tomato. Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is talking about Babylon, standing for opposition to God, the city that is in rebellion against God. And say, there'll come a time when Babylon is fallen under the judgment of God and is destroyed, and then the stones will cry out. Meaning, of course, that when that city is destroyed, the destruction itself of the stones will speak. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you don't Listen to this gospel good news that I'm bringing. Then the city of Jerusalem, that city that should be the foundation, the very foundation of peace, that city will be destroyed like Babylon. And then the stones will speak. They'll cry out. Which, of course, is what happened in A.D. 70. When Jerusalem was destroyed. Really matters who you listen to. Um, my wife, um, my wife's mother is Canadian. And that of course means we have Canadian relatives. And uh, her grandfather uh, built a, um, a small cottage in the north of Canada many years ago. It's really a log cabin. And uh, he built it there with his own hands, so obviously it's a sort of family thing. And it's very basic. In our early years of marriage, we would sometimes go up there to take a little bit of a vacation. And uh, after winter, sometimes you find that the water was not working, and you'd have to go down to the pump house right down by the lake and uh, figure out what's going on. And sometimes you'd have to actually get into, at that point, pretty cold water, wade out into the lake and figure out where the hose was and take the stones away from it that had begun to block the hose. And then you turn the the engine on for the pump and still nothing's happened because you'd have to prime the pump. You'd have to put some water in it to prime the pump. And many of us feel like that, don't we? We feel like... I'm putting all this effort in. I'm trying so hard. It's like you've got the pump going, running like this, but nothing's, nothing's happening. You've got to prime the pump. And that comes as we listen to God's word. By the Spirit, God takes his word and gives us fresh energy and life as we sit under the preaching of God's word, as we get into God's word on a daily basis, as it were, the pump is primed and we sense that we're in the right place. We have this sense of fulfillment, of wholeness, of being on the right track and empowered by God's spirit to do what it is that he's called us to do. We've got to prime the pump. It's such an important thing these days that we learn to listen again. 
You know, we are so distracted. Got all this information constantly bombarded at us. And we think we're so clever because we can look it up on Wikipedia, you know. And we think, oh, no, I know better. I've Googled that. And we don't have what is called deep learning. Hearts are not engaged. We haven't really thought it through. We've got to have the pump primed by God's word to truly engage with what it is that he's saying to us. And not just let it fly over our heads as if, it, as if he wasn't saying anything. Who you listen to. But then finally, when, when you decide... This is verses 41 to 44. It's the end of the passage. When you decide. And of course, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. As I say, everyone else is rejoicing, apart from one person. Everyone else is having a great time. It's party time for everyone else, but not for Jesus. He's weeping. And he's weeping because he says, he says if you, even you, city of Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who are sent to you, if you... Even you, foundation of peace as you're meant to be. If you, even you, even you. But now it's hid from your eyes. There can come a time when you say no to God so often that he takes you at your word. And you have eyes, but you cannot see. Ears, but you cannot hear. A heart, but you will not receive. I tell you, it's when you decide. One president of America once put it like this about decisions. He said, when it comes to a decision, the best thing to do is the right thing. The worst thing to do is nothing. You get it? Because if you do nothing, you're doing something. You've got to decide. He said, I thought it was all by grace. I thought God did it all. Well, yes, but you still got to decide. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, in a sense, I felt like I had no choice. But in another sense, it was the freest decision of my life. You've, you've got to decide. God has been convicting you of something. You've got to say yes to God. In um, England, there's a judicial tradition. It's actually, judges in England still carry this with them, but they don't use it anymore. It's related to capital punishment. The, the capital punishment is not on the law books in England anymore, so they don't use this. But um, judges in England, there's this judicial tradition that when a judge was about to give um, his ruling, if it was going to be a capital punishment ruling, someone was going to be hanged, 
then he would um, get out uh, what's called a black cap. It's not actually a cap. It's actually a piece of cloth, square piece of cloth. He'd get out this black cap, and he'd put it on his head with the corner pointing forward as um, symbolism of what he was about to do. And then he'd make his declaration. George Whitfield, the great evangelist from yesteryear, if he sensed as he was preaching that a congregation or audience or a gathering was not responding to this call to receive the gift of Jesus, even with the, the weeping tears of Jesus himself, George Whitfield would literally get out a black cap, put it on his head, and he would say, I don't want to do this. You've driven me to it. I don't want to do this. By the last day of judgment, he will declare, depart from me, I never knew you. And Whitfield would symbolically, ceremonially, as it were, reenact the day of judgment with tears in his eyes. That's what Jesus is doing. By putting it this way, he's saying, there is a last chance, and it is now. Seize it. What about you? Will you keep on resisting his word? I don't need to obey him. I, I made a decision when I was 10. What do you mean I need to obey him? I went to a Christian college. What, what do you mean? Will you receive the grace of God? That's how you find peace. I know you're saying, well, this is, this is not the kind of Palm Sunday message I expected. Well, it's kind of what's in the Bible. It reminds me a little bit of Henry Ford. Henry Ford was not a great believer. You know, the, the Ford manufacturer, of course. Henry Ford was not a great believer in customer surveys and all that kind of thing. One time he said this, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. My job is to proclaim the gospel as it is in God's word. If you, even you. But now it's hid from your eyes. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. A time such as this, this Easter. But if you do, you'll find peace. And if you find peace, you'll rejoice. Let me leave you with this. Oliver Wendell Holmes, when uh, obviously one of the great Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes one time said that he almost became a pastor, a minister, and he was asked why he didn't. And he said, the reason why I never did is because when I looked at so many Christians, they looked like they were about to go to the undertaker. There was no joy. Well, how can there be joy if you don't sense you have peace? One conference, 
trying to encourage the people who were attending to rejoice, handed out helium balloons to all the attendees so that when at the moment they felt joy, they would release the balloons. And it is said at the end of the conference, a third of the balloons remained unreleased. Release the balloon (laughs) if you found peace. Then you can rejoice. The Lord is king. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do pray as we come to this Easter season that you would give us a spirit of repentance and therefore that we would find peace and therefore we would rejoice that you are king. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.